Before we begin today, I need to issue an apology to the states of Illinois and Indiana. On Minutes of Our Mythology Part 1, I claim that Iowa and Idaho were the only states that begin with the letter I. Um, it was an honest mistake, but I want all to know that Our Strange Skies recognizes both Illinois and Indiana as states. Now, on with the show. On December 11th, 1984, filmmaker Jamie Chandra was at home reading his copy of Variety magazine when an unmarked package dropped through his mail slot in a manner that has spy thriller written all over it. It was postmarked from New Mexico and inside was an undeveloped roll of 35mm film. That evening, Chandra was set to meet Bill Moore, and you might remember him from... Uh, the episode I just did with MJ Benias. Uh, he's a UFO investigator, and they were about to go to dinner. Instead of sharing a meal, the two frantically worked to develop the photos in Moore's kitchen. The photos didn't contain images of a single person or landscape. Instead, there were eight pages of briefing documents for then-president-elect Dwight D. Eisenhower, dated November 18, 1952. These papers made bold claims, stating things like flying saucers were of extraterrestrial origin, and the government had recovered many of them, including the one that went down near Roswell, New Mexico. Not only did we have crash saucers, but also alien bodies, and even a live alien who managed to survive in our atmosphere for a short period of time. The most bold claim made was that on September 24th, 1947, the day after General Nathan Twining requested a full study of the UFO phenomenon, President Harry S. Truman established a top-secret group known as Majestic 12. This group included such individuals as Dr. Donald Menzel, a noted UFO skeptic. In fact, I have, I believe, called him an ass clown or an ass bag or something like that on this show. General Hoyt Vandenberg, who will play a part in the upcoming narrative of this episode, James Forrestal, the first Secretary of Defense, and Dr. Vannevar Bush, among others. To further the mystery, a year after the MJ-12 documents had come to light, Bill Moore received an odd postcard. The postcard appeared to be from Ethiopia, but was postmarked from New Zealand. It had a cryptic message on the back, part of which stated... Add zest to your trip to Washington. Try Reese's Pieces. For a stylish look, try Suitland. This led Chandra and Moore to Maryland to view documents that were allegedly being declassified. Lo and behold, another MJ-12 document was among the bunch. Other documents would surface over the years, most notably the Psalm 101 manual sent to Don Berliner in March of 1994 on a roll of 35mm film. Seems to be a pattern that keeps repeating itself. It was a field manual for essentially how to deal with a crash UFO and its occupants. For years, Chandra, Moore, Stanton Friedman, and many other researchers tried desperately to prove these documents authentic. Friedman would visit the archives of Truman and Eisenhower, confirming meeting times that coincided with the players mentioned in the memos. There was a fury to confirm the font and style of the documents printed. 
People criticized the way things were worded, the style of dating, the signatures, the everything about these documents. Former guest John Tenney relayed a story to me via Twitter about being swept up in the fervor as investigators called for typewriter samples from as many typewriters as they could get, of which John contributed. Eventually, though, the documents were debunked in a cavalcade of who's who in the UFO world, including Sam Fredrickson's man, Jacques Vallée. The FBI got wind of these documents in the late 80s, and after investigating them, ruled them to be fake. They went so far as to write the words bogus in big black letters, like I assume somebody just took a Sharpie and wrote all over them. I'll include a link to those images of the documents. They are pretty hilarious. Many believe the documents to be the product of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations out of Kirtland Air Force Base. During the 80s, a group of 10 individuals, including, most famously, Richard Doty, introduced disinformation in the form of mythology into UFO discourse. The 1952 UFO wave turned into the elaborate story of then-President Eisenhower meeting with the Greys to exchange humans in the form of abductions for advanced technology. And as I've mentioned, 1947 became the year that the members of the government came together to put policy in place to deal with crash saucers and its extraterrestrial occupants. How did these lies affect our understanding of the UFO phenomenon's early years? Do they take away from the actual reports? What can we learn from this mythology? We'll be addressing this mythology more in the future. We've kind of touched on it, but in the meantime, I bring you the story of the government's first study of the UFO phenomenon, which includes the remaining three minutes of our mythology, as well as a slew of other fascinating reports. This is the story of the government's search for a sign. What's up, euphonauts? Welcome to the Our Strange Guys Podcast. In part one, we covered roughly the first 12 minutes of the minutes of our mythology. The remaining three would take place early on, toward the end of January. 1948 was roughly an hour old when it received its first UFO report from a man in Abilene, Texas, who claimed to see a, quote, fan-shaped glow in the sky. While this report was dismissed rather quickly, the government would be tested rather quickly itself by the UFO phenomenon. Project Sign, or if you prefer the official designation, MCIAXO-3 was organized under Air Material Command out of Wright-Patterson Air Force Base through its Intelligence Division, also known as T2, as in Terminator 2, because shit is about to go down. Air Material Command itself was divided into three divisions, T1, which oversaw personnel and the general operations, T2, which gathered and analyzed intelligence of a related nature, and T3, which was related to engineering. The project was headed up by Captain Robert R. Schneider, the project chief. He was joined by Alfred C. Loading of Air Material Command's T3 Engineering Division, 
One of his specialties was low-aspect aircraft designs. Uh, examples of this would be like the flying wing, for instance, or like a flying disc itself. He even had a patent within the U.S. Patent Office for one of these type of craft. Through Project Sign, he would personally interview many UFO witnesses and investigate cases himself. He also acted as a liaison between the Air Force and the Pentagon. Civilian engineer Lawrence Trutner and civilian intelligence analyst A.B. de Yarmond would round out the core members of the group. Trutner and de Yarmond would go on to produce the Project Sign final report in April of 1949. While these four were the ones tasked with looking at the reports, they did receive assistance from various people and organizations, like the CIA. You can't trust them. What the hell are you doing? The first real test for the personnel on Project Sign would come before the project even began and would result in the death of an armed service member. On January 7, 1948, sighting reports began to flood into Kentucky State Police offices. At approximately 1.20 p.m., eyewitnesses reported seeing a strange object near Fort Knox. They described it as a large, circular, metallic object of 250 to 300 feet, or 91 meters, in diameter following a westbound path. The state police forwarded these reports to Godman Airfield and asked if they could see anything from their vantage point. At 1.45 p.m., Sergeant Quentin Blackwell and two other radio tower operators caught sight of an object from inside their control tower. The object appeared to change from red to white in an unusual pattern to their eyes. Base Commander Colonel Guy Hicks also saw the object while at the airfield, and stated that it was a, quote, very large white umbrella-shaped object about one-fourth the size of the moon. He also reported that the object had a red or pink border at the bottom of it and that it stayed stationary for approximately an hour and a half. At approximately 2.35 p.m., a group of P-51 Mustangs on a return trip from Georgia was passing through the area. They were headed for Standiford Airfield in northern Kentucky. The group's leader was a man named Thomas F. Mantell a 25-year-old native of Kentucky who earned a Distinguished Flying Cross and another Air Medal during World War II. At this point in his career, he had approximately 2,000 hours of flight time registered. He was joined by three other pilots, one who would continue on to Standiford Field due to low fuel. The other two, however, were in for the long haul. The first being Lieutenant Albert Clemens, the right-wing man to Mantell and 2nd Lieutenant B.A. Hammond, the left-wing man. The small crew was on a mission to taxi these planes back to Standiford after being used in a training exercise. The only plane that had oxygen at the time, and this is important to note, is Lieutenant Clemens' plane. At approximately 2.40 p.m., their cockpit radios came to life as Sergeant Blackwell radioed the lead pilot of Air National Guard 869 to see if they had enough fuel to investigate and identify the object to the south. Mantell agreed, and with the exception of the one man that moved on to Standiford, began to pursue the object. Mantell ended up pulling far ahead of his compatriots and fellow wingmen just leaving them in the dust. At 2.45 p.m., Mantell called out, I see something above and ahead of me, and I'm still climbing. 
Clemens, who was still not in sight of the object, or barely even Mantell at this point, called out saying, What the hell are we looking for? The tower radioed back to Mantell, looking for a description. Quote, I've sighted the thing. It looks metallic, and it's tremendous in size. Now it's starting to climb. End quote. Mantell continued further. Quote, it's above me, and I'm gaining on it. I'm going to 20,000 feet. End quote. This is believed to be Mantell's last transmission, though this is hotly contested. For one, uh, an individual that we'll be talking about later, Edward Ruppelt, he was the first head of Project Blue Book, which we will be talking about episodes from now. But he said that uh, the description that many claim to believe Mantell said, he may not have actually said it. So the dialogue is a little contested, but that's, that's fine. At 3.15 p.m., all went silent from Mantell. Clemens and Hammond leveled off at 15,000 feet, searching and sending out calls for Mantell, but failed to make contact with him. Three minutes later, at 3.18 p.m., Mantell's plane would fall out of the air. As Glenn Mays, a resident of Franklin, Kentucky, would describe it, quote, the plane circled three times, like the pilot didn't know where he was going, and then started into a dive from about 20,000 feet. About halfway down, there was a terrific explosion, end quote. Captain James F. Dusler would comment on the wreckage of the plane, saying, quote, the wings and tail section had broken off on impact with the ground and were a short distance from the plane. There was no damage to the surrounding trees, and it was obvious that there had been no forward or sideways motion when the plane had come down. It just appeared to have belly flopped into the clearing. There was very little damage to the fuselage, which was in one piece, and no signs of blood whatsoever in the cockpit. There was no scratching on the body of the fuselage to indicate any forward movement and the propeller blade bore no telltale scratch marks to show that it had been rotating at the time of impact, and one blade had been embedded into the ground. The damage pattern was not consistent with an aircraft of this type crashing at high speed into the ground. End quote. Mantell's watch stopped at 3.18 p.m., which is what investigators surmised with the time of his death. Controversy would arise shortly after, sending the public into a panic. The nature of UFOs had changed. Suddenly, the flying saucers were here to cause us harm. When Project Sign finally convened on January 22nd, they would work as quickly as possible to downplay the sighting. One of the first moves they would make is to bring on our UFO dad, J. Allen Hynek, uh, on board to determine which reported objects might be attributed to natural celestial phenomena. That was really his primary job. He would look at reports, and he would try to uh, attribute whatever had happened to them to an astronomical type of event. Hynek was an obvious get for Project Sign. He was in the nearby area, had a high security clearance from working on various projects relating to V-2 rocket technology after World War II. During his time on Project Sign, he would look at a total of 244 cases. Uh, and uh, Throughout the course of Project Sign, over 700 cases would be reported to them. On the Mantell case, Hynek would state, quote, It appears to the present investigator, in summing up the evidence presented, that we are forced to the conclusion 
that the object observed in the early evening hours of January 7, 1948, at these widely separated localities, was the planet Venus. Venus. He chased Venus! Uh, I believe I've talked many times about Venus and how it's the culprit for a, a lot of UFO sightings. Just as Mars is tired of your shit, I'm pretty sure Venus is tired of your shit. Just saying. Many did not buy this assessment, including military personnel that witnessed the object themselves. Many of them signed affidavits attesting to the object, including tower personnel and pilots of various air bases in the area that ended up seeing the object. In 1952, Project Blue Book would reassess the report after a declassified project called Skyhook called into question everything about the Mantell sighting. Project Skyhook was a secret project out of Clinton Army Airfield that launched highly classified balloons for collecting meteorological data in Earth's high atmosphere. Hynek and the members of Project Blue Book quickly changed their conclusions from Venus to Skyhook Balloon. The only problem, as Richard Dolan has pointed out, no one has been able to conclusively prove that a Skyhook Balloon was launched around that time. Interestingly enough, Clinton Army Airfield and many airfields on the eastern United States reported seeing an object between 7 and 8 p.m. on January 7, 1948. At Clinton, they described the object as being really high up in the air. At times, it changed from a white to red color and had the ability to hover for a while and shoot off at tremendous speeds. When it descended, it appeared to be a cone-shaped object, like the one reported earlier that day. Clinton personnel also claimed to see a green mist following the object as it flew. The explanation offered up here, too, was the planet Venus. At least they're consistent about the bullshit they're peddling. Do you know what the shape of the planet Venus is? It's shaped like a goddamn dunce cap at this point. Yeah, I went old school with that. The public was still cautious, unconvinced by the Venus determination. Reports would continue to flood in, however, over 700 in Project Sign's short life, as I've said. A significant case occurred over Norcatur, Kansas, on February 18th. At about 5 p.m. on the day in question, a bolide meteor exploded over the town, sending shockwaves across three states, Kansas, Nebraska, and Oklahoma. It broke windows, rattled foundations, and terrified the shit out of residents. To calm nerves a bit, two B-29 bombers circled the area until nightfall, but ultimately didn't issue a statement on the matter for whatever reason. Many residents initially assumed that a plane had crashed, as a smoke trail was visible in the air, but was really too high up to indicate that. One man claimed that he heard a roaring sound that he assumed to be a rocket. It startled him so badly that he jumped off the horse he was riding. The Air Force seemed to have no interest in this case, but it was ultimately investigated by locals. While no actual meteor fragments seem to have been found, the exploding bolide theory seemed to have fit best, and I would tend to agree. I mean, 
That's what it sounds like. From February to March, there was real talk about authorizing planes to intercept flying saucers. Chief of Intelligence for the Air Material Corps, Howard M. McCoy, proposed to have fighter aircraft stationed at every base across the U.S. He essentially wanted pilots on high alert all the freaking time. And this proposition was obviously rejected on March 3rd, stating that staffing alone would be a nightmare and that it didn't appear to be feasible to capture one of these craft at the time. And still doesn't. We, we, we get outmaneuvered all the time. It was the seriousness of it all that may have influenced the early months of Project Sign. Since Mantell, everyone was on edge. Recovering a flying saucer was high on McCoy's list. During an Air Force Scientific Advisory Board meeting, he remarked, quote, This can't be laughed off. We have over 300 reports which haven't been publicized in the papers from very competent personnel in many instances. We are running down every report. I can't even tell you how much we would give to have one of those crash in an area so that we could recover whatever they are. So he's basically saying that nothing crashed at Roswell, or at least he doesn't know uh, about anything that crashed at Roswell. So at least from Air Material Command's point of view, there are no crash saucers. Damn it all. While reports continued rolling in, the military seemed to be a target of many of them. On April 5th at White Sands Proving Ground, a team of Navy missile trackers witnessed a UFO perform incredible maneuvers. Its shape appeared to be oval or disc like and appeared to be one-fifth the size of the moon in the sky. Here we go comparing it to the goddamn moon again, and it's always the same size. Using a theodolite, they measured the speed of the object at 18,000 miles per hour. That's right. Navy missile trackers. These are our government boys here come to the conclusion that it's moving at 18,000 miles per hour. You remember last time when Kenneth Arnold, he felt, you know, granted his sighting was like one of the first widely reported, but he felt uncomfortable with them going 1,700 miles per hour. But here, 18,000? That's crazy. Reports, however, are conflicting. As Richard Dolan reports it, the way previously stated, some claim that there were two objects that broke off in different directions. Regardless of the actual report, in response to this, Dr. Joseph Kaplan of the Air Force Scientific Advisory Panel went to White Sands Proving Ground to interview personnel on base to ascertain whether UFOs were of a great importance. After meeting with staff at the surrounding bases, he concluded that UFOs were of extreme importance and should be investigated scientifically. On May 7th, two people observed 50 to 60 unusual objects in the skies over Memphis, Tennessee. They appeared to be very high up, traveling at high rates of speed in a straight-line formation. Now... If you're looking for natural phenomenon, man-made or whatever, they don't travel in straight lines. It just doesn't happen. The objects themselves appeared to have a shine to them, as if they were made from bright aluminum. 
On occasion, a few of the objects would actually zigzag. In the uh, Project Blue Book files, these were classified as meteors. But it's unclear if this was the original assessment by J. Allen Hynek. Nobody really knows. Astronomers who looked at the case at the time, such as Paul Hergert of the Cincinnati Observatory, said, I don't think so. Not literally, but I like to picture that in my head. He was probably a lot more eloquent than I was. So the uh, witness to the next UFO sighting I'm going to talk about was an interesting fellow. His name is William A. Bonneville and was of the mind that it was your damn patriotic duty to report these interlopers in the sky. On May 17th, he witnessed a bright white ball over Montana airspace between Plevna and Miles City. The object would fly over the hills from the northwest, head south, and back towards the west. He watched this object perform these maneuvers for approximately 20 minutes, until it finally flew into a dark cloud. That's one thing that I find interesting, is that we keep coming back to this idea of UFOs flying into clouds, for whatever reason, or clouds appearing out of nowhere, and there, a UFO flies into it, or comes out of it. So that's, uh, that's an interesting kind of aspect. The folks of Project Sign would rule this case being caused by a refraction from the planet Mars. I believe I have stated already, Mars is tired of your shit. As our bullshit meters continue to tick, we are left to wonder whether they were doing this to keep a, a public calm or were they to downplay UFOs so much that they would hopefully just go away, that people would stop, you know, reporting them, they don't exist, uh, nobody's seeing anything. I struggle with that a lot, but I'm going to push that aside for, for a minute. Now, when Hynek came on to this project, he was very skeptical of the UFO phenomenon, mostly because the reports that he saw initially were like very vague, and they didn't have a lot of details that you could follow up on, and he was of the mind that maybe these things are just post-war nerves brought on by the fact that we could just enter another war at any second here. We're in the, middle, the, the beginning of the Cold War, and Lord knows the tension that is felt between communism and capitalism and all that crazy stuff. As we've talked about, like, on the UFO book club, it, this is just the beginning of his journey, but he would change a lot. Over the course of 20 years, he became the open-minded man. Um, and, yeah, that's a beautiful thing. When we come back from the break, we'll be talking about the Summer of the Saucer, where two of Project Sign's strongest cases would come from. The estimate of the situation and its rejection. All of that when we come back. Through the course of Project Sign, personnel were divided into two camps. Those that thought UFO reports were either straight-up bullshit, foreign technology, mass hysteria, or post-war nerves. 
Sign was largely concerned with the possibility that these may be highly advanced Russian technology, uh, and they were scared of that from the beginning, since uh, all the way back to Kenneth Arnold. The other camp specifically believed that these objects were of an interplanetary origin and that extraterrestrials were visiting Earth. The majority of cases would be explained away by misidentifications of some sort, but 48 of them, 20% of all cases reviewed, were classified as unidentified. The April 5th sighting at Holloman Air Force Base baffled Heineck. Quote, At the moment, there appears to be no logical explanation for this incident. End quote. It's because of these 48 cases that the extraterrestrial hypothesis was essentially made legitimate within the UFO community. That's where it became the primary source of UFOs as not human. And the source of my goddamn frustration, let's be honest. Pilots and civilians alike would continue to report sightings of UFOs. On May 25th, an Air Force officer flying as a passenger on an Air Force plane witnessed three objects descend and level off with the plane itself. They appeared in a formation reminiscent of a set of stairs, and they were described as, quote, fuzzy disc shape. The objects were in view for 10 to 15 seconds before moving away from the plane at a fast rate of speed. Again, it's that 10 to 15 second mark. Always. Two discs would then appear and perform similar maneuvers to the original three, and this time the officer was able to get the attention of another officer that was on board with him. Hynek's determination was that there was no astronomical explanation for these objects, but that they could be due to a meteorological phenomenon or perhaps a reflection. Keep it vague, man. Just keep it vague. On June 30th, a husband and wife were driving in South Dakota when they noticed an unusual-looking star in the sky. The husband was an amateur astronomer. They stopped the car to watch it for a little while. They were convinced that what they were looking at was not actually a star, because it was a lot bigger, at least according to them, but like... When you read the report, it's kind of conflicting. It's bigger, but it's still really high up there. So they drove and stomped a few more times before the objects appeared to change size and shape. A small round object would break away from the star, as well as two others. Together, they would form a triangle around the original star-like object. If you had a slash in the middle of it, it would have been the Deathly Hallows symbol. The central object would dissolve into numerous smaller objects that eventually faded, while the three additional objects would rise up until they faded away as well. This time, Hynek explained them away as a group of balloons that were carrying a cosmic ray apparatus. Okay, let's slow your roll, man. Just slow your roll. In a case from July 7th, a year earlier, William A. Rhodes witnessed a 20 to 30 foot elliptical gray object 
with a visible cockpit descend at a fast rate of speed. Perform a couple of rolls and descend quickly out of view. Rhodes actually had a camera with him and was able to capture two photographs of the object, which kind of looks like a modern snow sled with a hole toward the top of it. The photographs baffled Heineck and forced him to suggest that the case be reopened. However, the one case that shook Project Sign to its core that summer occurred on July 24th. As Edward Ruppelt stated in his book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, quote, According to the old-timers of AMC, that's Air Material Command, this report shook them worse than the Mantell incident. This was the first time two reliable sources had been really close enough to anything resembling a UFO to get a good look and live to tell about it. At approximately 2.30 a.m., an Eastern Airlines plane near Blackstone, Virginia, saw a brilliant, slow, meteor-like light traveling on the horizon. The sighting lasted for three seconds and moved in a southwesterly direction. Later, personnel from another Eastern Airlines plane, Flight 573, would come forward saying they saw the same thing. Fifteen minutes later... Eastern Airlines Flight 576, en route from Houston to Atlanta, noticed a bright light heading straight for them. Pilot Clarence S. Childs saw it first and said to his co-pilot, John B. Whitted, quote, Look, here comes a new Army jet job! Um, I love that dialect right there. I'm just going to say it. The object was on them quickly, and their DC-3 plane made an immediate left turn to avoid colliding with it. As they did, the object also made a left turn, allowing the pilots a close-up view of the side of the strange freaking object. They noted in their Project Sign report that, quote, It appeared to be a wingless craft, 100 feet long, cigar-shaped, and about twice the diameter of a B-29. Now, a B-29 has been mentioned previously, but a B-29 was known as the Super Fortress. It was one of the most expensive planes ever constructed during World War II. It was uh, one of the planes that was actually used to drop the bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So, twice the size of this thing would be ginormous. It is just absolutely huge. Childs and Witted would also note in their report, quote, it was clear that there were no wings present, that it was powered by some jet or other type of power shooting flame from the rear some 50 feet. There were two rows of windows, which indicated an upper and lower deck. From inside these windows, a very bright light was glowing. Underneath the ship, there was a blue glow of light. After it passed, it pulled into some light broken clouds and was lost from view. There was no prop wash or rough air felt as it passed. End quote. The two sat speechless in the cockpit for a while. If this incredible sighting wasn't enough, it was correlated by additional eyewitnesses. Clarence McKelvey was one of the 20 passengers on the plane. Now, this is at night, so you can pretty much assume that most people are probably sleeping. It was a six hour flight, so plenty of time to catch some Z's. He claimed to see, quote, a southern streak of light moving in a 
southern direction across the airway of the plane. End quote. The light was a cherry red color with yellow edges. McKelvey first mistook it for lightning, but its straight line path made it impossible, and he, he felt that way too. At Robbins Air Force Base near Macon, Georgia, Walter Massey noticed an unusual light approaching from the north. It looked like a stream of fire, but as it passed overhead, it was clear that it was cylindrically shaped and had a stream of jet fire coming out of the tail end of it. What makes Massey a more credible eyewitness in this case is the fact that he had previously seen jet aircraft and rocketry in flight. He recounted that during the Battle of the Bulge, he and his platoon had witnessed a large, fast-moving rocket that he later learned was a German V-2. It was the V-2 that he compared seeing this object to, only it moved a lot faster than that. He saw this moments before Charles and Witted did. These objects were not new, though. In northern European skies, between 1946 and 1948, numerous people saw what came to be known as, quote, ghost rockets. Some of them would make very complex maneuvers, while others appeared to be more like German V-1 and V-2 rockets. Four days before the Charles witted incident, in the Netherlands, their government received reports of a cigar-shaped object with two decks of windows seen by multiple people. So we essentially have a correlated sighting in another country. So th this makes this a lot more fascinating sighting. And the UFO diehards will know this case, you know, in and out. Um, for the ones that don't, I hope to impress upon you how important this sighting is. It triggered a lot of things within the government. Of course, it blew up in the media. They were quick to dub this object, a, you know, in the papers, the Sky Monster or the Sky Devil. Because Lord knows we need to personify our freaking UFOs negatively. This was at a time when the media, aside from the Mantell incident didn't touch UFOs. They didn't touch UFOs long after people started to report them in 47. They were pretty much still a laughingstock, until they weren't in this case. The personnel of Project Sign went into a panic of their own. According to Ruppelt, in Intelligence, if a vital problem exists, you produce a report called an estimate of the situation. Project Sign's estimate became infamous, as no known copies exist today. Many people claim to have seen the report. Uh, Ruppelt claims that the document was thick, focused solely on the unknown cases, and talked about the reality of these UFOs as being interplanetary craft. They really went all in on this alien business. It was around this time, too, that President Harry S. Truman started to receive quarterly briefings from Colonel Robert B. Landry, Truman's Air Force aide. He would supposedly coordinate with the CIA before briefing the president, and every briefing was delivered orally. The way that Landry stated in an interview, like years later, like 1974, is that if it was written it would have been very important like life-changing in a way 
Truman kind of acted like he wasn't interested in UFOs, but should be interested because they could be seen as a threat to national security. So, presumably, Landry gave Truman 18 of these briefings over the next four and a half years. As Project Sign's estimate of the situation began working its way through military hierarchy, 1948 would experience its third high-profile UFO sighting. And like Mantell, it was from an Air National Guard pilot. George F. Gorman, also 25, was coming into Fargo, North Dakota in similarly a P-51. He circled around the area a few times waiting to land. At 9 p.m., he was waiting for a Piper Club to land below him when he noticed an odd taillight pass by him. So he was pissed off, and he radioed the tower to express that anger, but the tower claimed that there was no other traffic in the area. Gorman decided to pursue the object and pushed his plane to within 1,000 yards, close enough to discern that it was 6 to 8 inches in diameter. This thing is tiny. Strangely, though, he couldn't make out an outline of, like, a craft that it may have been attached to or something like that. He could see below him the Piper plane, like, the outline from the lights and everything. So, yeah, he was pretty baffled. And then the light, it was initially blinking, and then it went purely solid. And it began to make a series of turns once Gorman tried to engage with it. He essentially made a left bank turn, and shortly thereafter, so did this object, whatever it was. And then it continually crossed Gorman's own canopy, like it got really close, until it just shot straight up and disappeared. Four other observers witnessed this light, too, including the Piper Cub pilot, Dr. A.D. Cannon, and his passenger, Anar Nielsen. I think that's how you pronounce his name. This caused Project Sign personnel to rush to Fargo to find an explanation for it. Why wouldn't they? This is a National Guard pilot. Gorman would make an odd statement after his encounter, saying that he, quote, had the distinct impression that its maneuvers were controlled by thought or reason. Sign would conclude that Gorman saw a lighted balloon, which could perform the most amazing fucking maneuvers ever seen. Again, like I've said many times before, could the government be doing this to keep a public calm, or is there something more sinister at hand with these bullshit explanations? When you're looking for an obvious explanation, or a more down-to-earth one, and they put forth this kind of stuff, it makes the report incredibly... Well, it makes the conclusions incredibly less believable. It is almost hyperbolic in a way. Air Force Intelligence began to work on its own kind of estimate of the situation that many came to call the, quote, ghost of the estimate. Its full title was, quote, The Analysis of Flying Object Incidents in the United States. And it took a hardline skeptical approach to the flying saucer phenomenon, whereas the estimate was all aliens all the time. 
It was this report that ultimately won out, as the estimate of the situation was rejected by Air Force Chief of Staff General Hoyt S. Vandenberg in October. That's right, that MJ-12 motherfucker. Before the end of the year, this phenomenon would take on a new form in the shape of green fireballs or lights. The first reports came from late November of 1948, the most infamous sighting of them would come on December 5th. A C-47 near Albuquerque observed a huge green fireball arc upward, then level off, heading off in a horizontal trajectory. Minutes later, a Pioneer Airlines pilot saw a large orange object change to a green color, dodge to the side of the plane, and plummet down to Earth. These reports would persist through April of 1949. And in April of 1949, Lewin Struttner and A.B. Deryarmond would produce Project Science Final Report, leading to the formation of Project Grudge, which was a project that was flat out offended by the idea of UFOs. These objects, whatever they were, would not be taken seriously again by the government until the beginning of Project Blue Book in 1952, and even then, it wouldn't be more than a year before their attitude changed. Whatever we were seeing in our skies back then, we're still seeing now. Our mythology has been shaped and reshaped. But when we pull back, what hasn't been changed is the actual events that happened. The details persist, much like the phenomenon does. Green fireballs were actually seen all over the United States late last year and early this year. It was kind of interesting to see those reports pop up. A similar cone-shaped object that was seen by Thomas F. Mantell and other Air Force personnel was sighted by two police officers nearly 20 years later. And if you listen to the Not Alone podcast and you listen to their uh, government UFO episodes, you know that this one cop named it Floyd. That's right, the UFO named Floyd. Whatever this phenomenon is, it likes to remain familiar, and it shapes itself. If you are not convinced by the possibility of these objects being seen in our skies, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Dr. J. Allen Hynek. Quote, I've begun to feel that there is a tendency in 20th century science to forget that there will be a 21st century science, and indeed a 30th century science, from which vantage points our knowledge of the universe may appear quite different than it does to us. We suffer, perhaps, from temporal provincialism, a form of arrogance that has always irritated posterity. End quote. You can find the Our Strange Skies podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, Spotify, and most podcast apps. If you'd like to get in contact with me, you can email the show at ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just search for Our Strange Skies. Check out our Facebook group, too, In Grey We Trust, a group for those that look up into Our Strange Skies. We do have a Patreon page. Rewards include shoutouts, early access to the regular episodes, and monthly bonus episodes called Their Strange Skies, where we look at UFO incidents from other countries. 
We have one bonus episode up right now, and I have to apologize for the lateness of the next one. It was recorded, but I attempted to do some stuff in Audacity that rendered the audio useless. I attempted to put a noise gate on my audio because when I recorded with Amber and Andrew, it turns out that my uh, headphones were up too loud. You could hear a slight echo. And yeah, I attempted to put a noise gate in there and it totally backfired and it rendered my audio useless. But... We will be re-recording soon, and figuratively, probably in June, you're going to get two bonus episodes. Shout out to my newest patron, Rosie Deloche. She is the co-host of the Rabbit Hole Motel podcast, which is a great podcast in which Rosie tells these fantastically weird stories that delve into esoteric and historical topics to her co-host, Derek. It's a great mix of serious and funny, so go check them out. Their first episode was on Edgar Casey, and I love the hell out of it. So uh, it's a, definitely a podcast worth your time. We still have merch available in the Tee Public store. Check out the link in the show notes uh, if you're interested in that. There will be some new designs coming soon done by the great Desdemona to go along with the great many designs she has already created for our store. Special thanks to the Osic on this one. They really pointed me uh, in the right direction to go for this episode. Special thanks to Jennifer, Annie, and Molly for the research that they put into Minutes of Our Mythology Part 2. It, it helped so much. Our logo was designed by Tessa Brown, and our theme song was composed by Shane Yoder over at PutThemInASong.com. And finally, don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies. Yeah.